glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. Uh, if you're one of our guests, we do hope you will stick around to the services and let us get to know you and get to know us just a bit better. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans 2 and verse 14. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. And as we read the text, if you are willing and able, why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word and for the prayer over His Word. Hear now the word of the true and living God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Let us pray. O divine lawgiver, who has even written the work of the law in our hearts. More than that, because we are your children, you have written even your law on our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would with clarity see and be exposed to your holy wisdom this morning. So that we are better equipped, better enabled to engage our culture for your glory. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We continue our sermon series uh, that we are calling Six Questions to Ask a Skeptic. And again, these questions not in, intended or designed to be gotcha questions, but designed to encourage open, non-manipulative dialogue, open conversation uh, with our friends, our family, co-workers who are not believers. And we are utilizing the definition that is uh, put forward by Barna in his book, Seven Faith Tribes. Uh, there's the cover of it there. His definition is anyone who does not identify as religious. And in recent years, there's been discussion about the rise of the, the nuns, those who identify as no religious affiliation. At the time when Barna wrote that book, that number, that figure was 11%. Since then, according to recent research by Gallup, that number has climbed to where it dances between 20 and 21 percent of the U.S. population identify with a worldview that either marginalizes or even altogether eliminates God. And when you do that, the big questions remain unanswered or they go unanswered. And so that's what we're doing with these, uh, these lessons are, we're, we're doing our best to equip ourselves with our own answers, rooted in our own faith in God and in His Word, to the questions of origin and meaning, and this morning we turn our attention to morality. You hear the question we want to address this morning is, can we be good without God? That's what it should say there, and unfortunately, uh, my PC does not agree with our Mac in the back, which is fine. 
I'll just tell it to you. Can we be good without God? And we have specifically designed that question in that way for a particular reason. There are, again, these competing worldviews where on the one hand, uh, we, we say, Christians say, that of course uh, we can not only be good with God, but it is because of God that we actually have a definition for what good and conversely what evil is. The unbelieving worldview, on the other hand, will say, of course I do good things without God. But again, that raises other questions that we'll seek to address here, not the least of which is, okay, how, how is it that you're able to define good and evil when you have no objective standard whereby you can define those things? You see, according to the unbelieving worldview, the best that we can do is essentially come up with a morality which is intersubjective. And what they mean by that is we have this ongoing cultural conversation with one another whereby we work to define good and evil. And in fact, um, boy, this is really messed up, isn't it? Uh, what else do I have on here? Oh, there we go. There we go. You, you, of course, recognize this picture, although it's kind of in contrast here. But that is, of course, the, the picture of uh, Darwinian evolution in action all the way from monkeys to modern man. And essentially the answer that we get from our skeptical friends is that morality is a biological adaptation. It's just another adaptation, courtesy of old natural selection uh, in action and evolution in action. And this can be a very individual thing where it boils down to my own personal preferences and, and kind of a utilitarian ethic also comes along where we want to minimize harm while maximizing pleasure or at least minimize harm. But even then, with a utilitarian ethic, who is it that defines what is harm? And what if, according to natural selection, we find that it is actually culturally advantageous that we do harm in certain circumstances? What then? You see, humans then, if it's not just an individual thing, well, you know, we're actually, like other animals, part of a herd. And so we develop a herd morality, H-E-R-D, herd, like a herd of cattle. Well, we're, we're humans, we have our own herds, this culture, that culture. And so we, we develop our own uh, evolution according to our particular herd. There's that ongoing cultural conversation. But again, we kind of run into the problem that we discussed briefly last week. What if my herd defines something as bad, which your herd says is good? That your herd has determined that for the benefit of the herd, you actually have to eliminate the undesirables within the herd. And who's to say one herd's morality is better than another herd's? By the way, again, historically that's happened. See World War II for more on that. You see, the question again is, can we be good without God? And I think we would identify that there are many of our skeptical friends and skeptical neighbors who do lead decent, hardworking lives. But again, that 
demonstrates that we need to clearly define what we mean in the question. Can we be good without God? You see, the question is not, must we believe in God in order to lead a moral life? We concede, yeah, you can, you can lead a, a, a decent, hardworking life, certainly. You might even call it good in that way. We're not even asking, can a skeptic be ethical? I, I think they recognize the reality of ethics. But again, this boils down to that word, good. How is it that we're actually able to define what is good and what is evil, given the foundations of the skeptical worldview, the unbelieving worldview? Absent God, good and evil become kind of these abstractions. And indeed, they no longer define actions. They Really what ends up happening is when you eliminate God, and you work from a materialistic worldview with, moles, with molecules to man, evolution, then what you end up with is essentially stardust bumping into other stardust. You end up with sacks of mostly water bumping into other sacks of mostly water. Everything just kind of becomes neutral at that point. Because again, there's no transcendent, objective, moral standard whereby we're able to define good and evil. Again, actions just kind of become neutral in the grand scheme of things. And so whether it is, say, a soldier diving on a grenade, sacrificing himself in order to protect his fellow soldiers who are in the foxhole with him, or one person visiting violence, even murdering another person in a dark alley, who's to say one of these is good and one of these is bad based on the skeptical worldview? Who says? We, of course, know who says, right? It's God who says, Christ who says, that one of these actions is noble and one is evil. But from a skeptical worldview, neither of those actions can truly be called good or evil. Again, we might say, according to the skeptical worldview, that the, the person who murders another person in a dark alley is intersubjectively wrong. We can't say they're absolutely wrong because we really can't know absolutes. There's your moral relativism creeping in as well. You see, if God does not exist, then morality is just a human convention, and it is subject to change based on the whim of the majority it is non-binding. Someone may say, well, but, you know, we have laws. And that's right. We do have laws. A society has laws. But where do those laws come from? We, of course, Christians say, well, God and His law is the foundation of all law. And the right application of what God has revealed is the foundation for civil society. And, of course, we know historically the American judicial system founded upon Judeo-Christian values, right? But then we go further. Society has laws. Well, that's right, but we might make laws that make certain activities illegal. Human cultures at other times have outlawed everything from belief in God to the world revolving around the sun. 
from slavery to interracial marriage, from polygamy to monogamy. At some point, these have been illegal. And of course, we can take contemporary examples. Behaviors which were taboo just two decades ago are not only legal, but they're paraded and championed as good. Homosexuality, transgenderism, one that's on the near horizon if you haven't heard of it. Have you heard of the MAPS or the YAPS, depending on who you're talking to? MAPS, M-A-P, Minor Attracted Persons, YAP, Youth Attracted Persons. It used to be called pedophilia, by the way, but not anymore. You see, again, when you start to dispense with God, you very quickly start rushing headlong into all kinds of deviant, aberrant behavior. Again, things that decades ago were not legal now, they are, and they're championed as good, and in fact, you need to get on board, you narrow-minded bigot, otherwise uh, things aren't going to go well for you. We'll do our best to sue your company out of existence. Have you heard that the fellow who, remember this, it was like a decade ago, he refused to make uh, a cake for a, a homosexual wedding, and he got sued for that? He ended up, by the way, winning that case. Well, here recently, he was brought to court again because uh, there was a transgender uh, party where they were asking him to make a cake that symbolized transgenderism, and according to his religious belief, he said, I, I can't do that. And instead of taking their business elsewhere, they decided to, once again, litigate. Same guy. These are the consequences of worldviews. Theology matters. And if you are a theist, that matters too. So then, okay, uh, where then... Do we get the idea that we can even call anything good? Well, we get it from God, and we get it from Christ himself. Only God is good, Jesus says in the Gospels. And we are dependent upon God for everything when it comes to morality. Here in Romans chapter 2, which we just read a moment ago, this is what one uh, philosopher called what we cannot not know. We can't not know that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. The best we can do when we know that is suppress that truth in unrighteousness. This is Paul in Romans chapter 1, by the way. He's specifically talking about the knowledge of God in that context, but I believe it's applicable also to the laws that God has put in place. The laws even that the Gentiles recognize as being inherent to our being, that there are uni- there's a universal common sense of the human race which uh, is the foundation of its own morality. That there are certain moral principles that are not only right for all, but at some level they are known by all. This is what Paul is saying here. Notice verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law They don't have the Mount Sinai experience with Moses coming down with the two tablets. They didn't sit even at Jesus' feet, who himself championed the law of God as good. Paul, in just a a few chapters, in chapter 7, is going to talk about how the law is good, holy, spiritual. Gentiles, they they didn't have that. 
and yet by nature they do what the law requires. In other words, again, there's built into all of us, it's written on the heart, the works of the law, what the law requires is written on our hearts. We cannot get rid of it. It's a demonstration also, by the way, that we are made in the image of God, that we are image bearers. Granted, that image, because of sin, is marred. It's effaced, but it's not erased. It's not completely annihilated or removed. It's still there. And that is why when, say, for example, you go to an unbeliever and you take something from them, they will protest. You start taking away their livelihood, you're going to hear about it because they know thou shalt not steal. The work of the law, the requirements of the law are written on their heart. And in fact, Paul goes on here, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. You can go across time and space, cultures, and they recognize that it's not a good thing to murder. How are they able to do this? Well, verse 15 goes on. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The work of the law, what the law requires, written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. There it is. This is the how. The conscience acts as the local deputy sheriff, as it were, in your mind. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so when you break the law, you cannot not know. Your conscience comes on the scene and says, no, you shouldn't have done that. Or when you keep the law, which you cannot not know, your conscience comes on and goes, hey, good job. Had a boy, had a girl. It's the conscience within us. Someone has even called the conscience God's presence in humans. It's built into us to know, again, that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. The reason why we end up with lawbreakers is because, again, they suppress what they know in unrighteousness. And in fact, they love their sin. They desire it more than doing the right thing. Or they take the good gifts of God, the the good gifts God has given us, like our minds, our ability to reason, but they press them into service in a twisted or a, a wrong way, what Scripture calls the futility of our thinking and the, the, the hardness of our hearts, the dark, darkness of our understanding. And then, again, utilize those good gifts that God has given us in ways that are ignoble and inglorious. Or, again, to use the language of Paul, Earlier in chapter 1, verse 24, the consequence of our sin is it brings divine judgment. And part of God's judgment in 1, verse 24 of Romans, it says God gave them up. There's there's the, the judicial action of God. He gives those who will not have Him and instead love their sin. He gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Part of it is, indeed, the judicial action of God. Really, what we're after here is 
it's not a problem of information. Romans chapter 1 says everybody knows there's a God, knows His eternal power, His eternal nature on display in the works of creation. Further, here in chapter 2 we see you cannot not know what the law requires. The works of the law are written in your heart, and you've got a conscience that bears witness to this. It's not an information problem. Then what is it? Let's do a quick run through Scripture here. Meet me in Job 15. Notice verse 14. Romans 15, 14. What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that can be righteous? These are rhetorical questions. They anticipate a negative response. Come with me to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And this is repeated, by the way, in Psalm 53. Psalm 14, verse 1. Fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. By the way, the, the, when Paul cites this in Romans chapter 3, he uh, states these as definite. No one understands. No one seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You beginning to see what the problem is? Jo, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. It's not a problem of information. What is it? We see, first of all, it's, it's a moral problem. But also Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. That's why we need the work of God in taking out the heart of stone, that hard heart, and giving us a heart of flesh. We need that new heart that only God can give us. We need to be converted. You see, when we mere mortals are left to ourselves and left to our own devices, we end up being moral train wrecks. God is the primary, singular source of anything good, especially anything good in us. So to abandon God, that means you abandon the only source of good and the only source for defining good. And in fact, as we've already said, in the absence of God, such actions no longer even count as good. Because if God does not exist, then those objective moral values do not exist. And then we're trapped in the intersubjectivity of the ongoing cultural conversation concerning human conventions. No, I don't think the skeptical worldview provides a very good answer to this question. In fact, no, we cannot be good. And in fact, Scripture affirms that humans disconnected from God, it doesn't get better. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Romans 6, verse 19. Evil people go from bad to worse. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. And in fact, this is exactly what we see when it comes to the offended conscience. You see, God has ordained. He's given us the steps whereby we can come into good relationship and good standing with Him once again when we recognize that we have sinned and we've fallen short of what He has required of us. 
when we recognize that we are lawbreakers and we've got a guilty conscience, we can come to God and, well, it's not going to work at all. The first thing we need to do is we need to make confession. We need to confess that we've broken the law of God, that we've come up short. We turn to God, we acknowledge wrongdoing. And we are told that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, forgive us of all of our transgressions. But when the skeptic mind is offended, when the skeptic conscience is saying, shouldn't have done that. It's accusing the unbeliever. There is no one to confess to in that worldview. No one. Because after all, it's just me in a dispassionate void of a universe. So what happens is that those misdeeds, instead of being confessed, they are flaunted. And Books, entire books are written in order to justify certain behaviors. Phone calls are made to late night talk show radio programs. Movies are made about their exploits. And what ends up happening is just what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, that they presume on the riches of God's kindness. And so the first step, confession, is distorted. And then the second step that God has ordained is atonement. You see, when we confess, again, God is faithful and just to forgive us. How does He forgive? He forgives us by the atonement made on the cross. Through the completed and uh, accomplished work of Christ on the cross, we find that our sins are forgiven. The blood of Jesus is applied to us. We are cleansed of all of our sin. Uh, and indeed, it is all of our sin that, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Atonement. But when the skeptical conscience is offended, there is no atonement. So what happens? Well, it's just what we mentioned a moment ago. Lawlessness, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Evil people go from bad to worse. It doesn't get better. Those misdeeds, which were flaunted, are now intensified. They do more of what ought not to be done. They, well, as we read, dishonor their bodies among themselves. They turn inward. And so, one sin becomes the gateway to other sins. Unrighteousness leading to more unrighteousness. So we confess, we have atonement that is made for us through Christ. And as a result of that, well, once atonement is made, fellowship is restored. And, and this is what Scripture calls reconciliation. We are made friends again with God. Relationship is restored, certainly vertically, between humans and God but also horizontally. I now have fellowship with everyone else who is in fellowship with God. The wall of hostility has been torn down. And now there is but one body. Reconciliation. Fellowship. Made friends again. We're built for this. We crave it. And so, 
the skeptical conscience is offended. Those misdeeds which were flaunted and intensified, they need to find fellowship as well. And so fellowship is found in someone who comes along and says, you know what, it's okay. The conscience is saying, shouldn't have done that. And then someone comes along and says, eh, it's okay, a boy, a girl. No, 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 it's not that big of a deal. Everyone must give approval to this. And indeed, what ends up happening is what Paul talks about earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 32, that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Where does that idea come from? It comes from the law, by the way. And so they know the decree of God, which is found in His law, and the judgment for certain abominable practices was the death penalty. This goes on here. Paul does, he says, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There it is. Misdeeds are, they find fellowship. You see, sin cannot remain a private thing. And the skeptic does not sin privately. No, they recruit. And they seek to bring others into their orbit. You see, if the mountain will not move, uh, if the mountain will not come to me, I will move the mountain. Transform society. Remove the stigma. That those things which were taboo and illegal decades ago, We'll just champion the legislation and get it pushed through. And if we can't get it through Congress, well, we'll get some activist judges on the bench who will act in accordance with our whims and wishes. Even hypothetical things are hijacked into hate speech. There's an example a few years ago when uh, Michael Sam, if you remember, he was a college football player who was a homosexual man. He entered the draft. And Tony Dungy, who was the Super Bowl winning coach for the Colts, he was asked if he would draft Michael Sam. Tony Dungy, who was, who was not in the league anymore, he wasn't a coach anymore, he was just a sports commentator. And because he said no, oh, he's the worst person on the planet. Again, hypothetical a hypothetical is hijacked in order to make someone out to be an evil person. This is part of the distortion of reconciliation where misdeeds must find fellowship and you have to say it's a good thing too, even if you don't give approval. Finally, justification. We've confessed, atonement has been made, we've been reconciled to God. And now, justification, that's the legal term. And in Scripture, that means that we have found right standing with God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. The seamless garment of Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in that. And it is just as if I'd never sinned, because the great exchange has taken place on the cross. My sins placed upon Christ, His righteousness credited to my account. Justified. Well, for the skeptic conscience, when it's offended and it has sought fellowship and finds it, well, now those misdeeds, those sins, they become an ideology of evil. And you have the full-blown suppression of truth in unrighteousness. One writer put it this way, unhooked from justice, 
Justification becomes rationalization, and rationalization is the homage paid by sin to the guilty conscience. If I can't be justified before the God I don't believe in, then I will justify my ideology in culture and society. This is the difference between the worldviews. What we've been seeking as we've, as we've gone along, not only to see the foundations of these, but the outworkings of these worldviews as well. They, again, worldviews have consequences. The way you frame the world, that has consequences. And if you will not adopt and assume the Christian worldview based on the triune God and His Word, then all that remains is the unbelieving worldview, the skeptical worldview, and it has a number of, a myriad of expressions, and they get outworked in a number of different ways. Bottom line is, they all get worked out under the framework of the evil one, the kingdom of darkness, and sin. And so, can we be good without God? The short answer is no. And that is because if there's no God, we've lost the very standard by which we distinguish right from wrong and good from evil. And then we're left with personal tastes, personal preferences, which are hardly dependable guideposts for truth due to our own fickleness. Or we're left with a, a herd morality, which is subject to change based on cultural conventions and the ongoing cultural conversation. But for us, we, we do believe that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong, and they're always right or they're always wrong. And, and the reason we believe that is because we believe that there is this transcendent moral law. And because we believe there's a transcendent moral law, we believe there's a transcendent moral law giver who has given us his law that transcends time and space, whereby we are able to distinguish and differentiate between Good and evil, right from wrong. God exists, which means objective moral values exist, moral duties, moral obligations, moral accountability based on, again, the conscience, accusing or excusing us. We must give an account one day for the things that we've done in this life, whether good or evil. Which is itself, by the way, another aspect of this, of... Uh, the fact that deep down within us, not only do we have the works of the law written on our heart, but there's the sneaking suspicion that there's coming a day when final justice must be done. And there is a justice we cannot not know as well, which is ultimately the final judgment, but for another time. It is the holy, pure, good nature of God from which our morality comes. Let's commit to prayer. Oh God, we acknowledge you as our creator. The one who has made us in your image and through Christ that image is renewed. That we are set right. We pray, Father, for the lost, 
those who do not believe in you, who do not believe in Christ. And we pray that with hearts of compassion, we would seek to engage them with uh, good questions and demonstrate the good answers that only you can provide from your word. We thank you for being a God who has not left us in the dispassionate darkness of this universe, but that you are actively involved in your creation, even sustaining it on a moment-by-moment basis. Father, we recognize that there have been times when we have not been good, even though we do believe in a good God. We pray that you would forgive us of that and that you would help us to be good, to be obedient to your good, holy, perfect law. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.